This program is produced by listener-supported KFUO Radio. Your support during KFUO share is vital to the continuation of great programs like this one. If you appreciate this program, please consider what you can give to support the ongoing ministry of KFUO Radio and this program. You can make a gift sending a text to the number 41444. Enter KFUO as the message. You'll get a text right back that walks you through the steps on your phone and it takes just a minute or two. You can also visit KFUO.org and click on the donate button or give Mary a call at 314-996-1518. Thanks for listening and supporting KFUO Radio. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, April 25th, we're starting a new series here on Sharper Iron, one that will take us through the book of Acts. This is the second book written by St. Luke. In his first book, St. Luke wrote all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now in his second book, the evangelist will tell us how Jesus' work continued as his word was preached in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Today we will be introducing the book of Acts as a whole and studying Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ, as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey Oswald. Dr. Oswald serves as professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Oswald, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you again. As we get started on the book of Acts this morning, Dr. Oshwald, it's a real joy to have you with us. You helped us greatly in introducing Luke and looking forward to doing the same with Acts. So give us a bit of a refresh. This is the second book by St. Luke. Remind us a little bit about the author that we'll be reading yet again here in Acts. The picture we get of Luke from the New Testament is, of course, primarily as one of Paul's co-workers. And we get the impression that he was both very trusted and a very intimate co-worker with Paul. Uh, Paul refers to him several times as uh, being with him in certain places, and especially at very significant moments. Uh, in his final moments, it seems like uh, Luke was the primary uh, comforter and encourager as Paul was in prison in Rome and uh, expecting at least uh, execution to come soon. In sort of popular uh, thinking about Luke, we probably remember him as the beloved physician, and Paul does refer to him by that title, and even though we don't ever see Luke actually practicing medicine in the pages of the New Testament, that seems uh, like a likely background for Luke. Um, He is apparently a Christian when he first meets Paul. And there are some early traditions about Luke that suggest he perhaps heard the gospel from uh, some of the 11 uh, with whom he was acquainted. And so Luke, in his gospel, you remember, says he has followed these things from the very beginning. And even though he doesn't actually become a character in the story until the book of Acts, 
I, we have every impression that he was involved, at least um, as early as the gospel started to spread uh, in this uh, good news of Jesus. I think you mentioned to me last time, that, and I, I wasn't aware of this, but that Luke likely was also a, a pastor within the early church. Is that is that correct? Uh, yes. Uh, he is not, of course, called by that or elder, uh, but if you follow Luke's travels carefully uh, in the book of Acts, you'll notice sometimes he will use the pronouns we, we went to a certain place, and then suddenly he will switch to, but they went on to this place. Uh, watching those pronouns and how they change, uh, you get the very clear impression that Luke remained in Philippi when Paul and the team went forward. And then when they circle back uh, through Philippi, Luke rejoins the group uh, so that the pronouns switch back to we again. So Luke apparently stayed in Philippi, and Paul, of course, was very concerned that pastoral care be provided to the people who had just heard the gospel. Uh, he didn't evangelize and then leave town, uh, so provided for their uh, pastoral care. Mm. And it looks like Luke was the one who stayed in Philippi to do that. Mm. And uh, for me personally, I've always thought that um, he must have been a pretty good pastor because of uh, all the churches Paul had relations with. Um, the church in Philippi was one that was uh, most joyful and supportive and close. Yeah. In in terms of the the date of Luke's writing and maybe the place of his writing, what can we say about those two topics coming concerning the Book of Acts? There's no clear indication of the date, although some people think that the fact that Paul was still living at the Book of Acts indicates that Luke must have written it before Paul was actually executed. I don't think uh, there's justification for reading the end of Acts that way, uh, because Luke isn't really telling the story of Paul in the book. He's telling the story of the progress of the word of Jesus Christ. So he has a uh, good reason to leave it um, with the word having reached Rome and with the promise that the word will go forward. So even if he had known that Paul had been killed already, uh, he wouldn't necessarily have wanted to include that uh, at the end of Acts. So other than just sort of general guesses as to Luke's lifespan and when he was born and died, uh, we don't have any good indications. Again, uh, early Christian information about Luke suggests he lived to a fairly old age, uh, that he ended his uh, career and life in central Greece, uh, again, that's uh, about as much information as we have. Uh, so uh, I don't think there's any need to suggest a long period of time after Paul's death. So uh, most, I think, conservative guesses would be in the late 60s or early 70s of the first century of our era. And in terms of place, you, you mentioned that he spent some time in Greece. Where where might he have been when he wrote this? I suppose that is hard to know as well. Yeah, it's very hard to know. I mean, the, the events at the end of Acts are all, you know, very concentrated in Rome, and it's possible Luke remained there for some time. 
there's some suggestion that he was actually a native of the city of Antioch, mm. where so much of the Christian mission in Acts sort of circles around. Uh, but again, from what we know, he uh, ended his career as a missionary uh, in central Greece. So any of those three places are, are likely candidates for where Luke was when he wrote. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the reason Luke writes and also the, the audience involved in that. As we saw in the first book, Luke, he wrote to a man by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus is mentioned uh -huh. again here. And Luke decides to write this second book. So talk a little bit about who Theophilus is, as, at least as much as we can tell, and then why Luke chooses to write this second book to him. Yeah, Theophilus uh, is a, a meaningful name. Um, the two parts of it are God and love. So it could be the one God loves, or it could be uh, one loved by God. Some have... Uh, tried to take it then as a strictly symbolic name, uh, that it's addressed to any reader who loves God or that whom God loves. I think there's good indication, and most scholars today would say Theophilus was an actual historical person. In the address to him in the Gospel, uh, Luke refers to him as most excellent, uh, which suggests that he perhaps had a, a government position or at least a fairly high uh, position in society. And Luke says uh, he is writing to give Theophilus uh, certainty about the things he has taught, has been taught. Uh, so he's not writing to Theophilus to bring him to faith, but to strengthen him in the faith uh, by giving a full account of the work of Jesus. Um, that's about as much as we know. Um, the fact that he addresses it to Theophilus may suggest that Theophilus was a kind of patron uh, who would have made possible the, both the production and then the publication of these two writings, but we don't know that for certain either. So why, why does Luke choose to write this second book to Theophilus? Of all the evangelists, he's the only one who gives us a second book of, well, I suppose John gives us more of the writings of the, of the New Testament as well. He gives us some epistles and revelation. But, but Luke is alone in recounting what happens after Jesus' ascension and then the years following that from a, I guess, a historical perspective. What's Luke doing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so no one else gives us a, a narrative account of, as you said, what happens next. And uh, actually, no one else gives us a narrative account of Jesus' ascension. Uh, so Luke uh, continues that story. And I thought your opening paraphrase of Acts 1, verse 1, at the beginning of the show, uh, was, was perfect. Because you showed the connection between these two books uh, in that they were both about Jesus. The first book is about what Jesus began to do and teach, and then the second book will continue that story. I think a lot of people don't see Acts as a book about Jesus, but about the church and what happens when Jesus, so to speak, is gone. I think Luke is writing, at least in part, to correct that idea, that Jesus continues through uh, now other voices to get this good news, this message that he proclaimed in the gospel out 
uh, to the world. Mm. Um, and so the second book should also be read as a book about Jesus. Um, and Luke thinks this story is not done. And uh, we want to follow it for a while and see how the words of Jesus are fulfilled, uh, to see the consequences and the implications of his uh, dying and rising for us. Mm. So I think Acts really fills out that picture uh, for us. It does a lot of other things along the way, but uh, that, I think, is Luke's main purpose. What are some of those other things then that the book of Acts does? I mean, it is a pretty unique book within the history or within the canon of scripture. Even when you, you know, like in confirmation classes, for example, when you show the books of the Bible, you know, there's four gospels and then there's a lot of epistles and in between them, you've got this one book, Acts. So what are some of the other things that are happening in this unique book? Yeah, I used to begin uh, my uh, course segments on Acts by asking students, when do you ever hear the book of Acts in church? <laughs> That's a great and question. And they would, of course, say, well, Pentecost, and then if you would remember, well, yeah, Ascension, but that's Thursday, so not even everyone gets that. <laughs> but other than it gives us our text for Pentecost, uh, many students have learned to read Acts primarily as background for the career of Paul. Now, Acts does provide a lot of background information, but I think we lose a lot if we see it as a kind of appendix or almost a Bible help. And that's uh, one mistake uh, in the way Acts has been used uh, that I hope we're slowly correcting. Uh, students don't say that as much as they used to. But we get a lot of introduction uh, to the places that Paul in particular goes, the experiences he has in those places, and that background does help give us some context for the letters he then writes to those people, uh, which we also have preserved in his epistles. So it does give a lot of the history of this gospel sort of taking root and moving out into the world. You um, also have, of course, the chronicle of the way, at least the 11, and then Paul, well, I should say primarily Peter, uh, and then Paul uh, carry out uh, this uh, work of being the witnesses of the risen Lord Jesus. But people who uh, look for mission strategy in Acts are often a little bit disappointed uh, because, they, again, the focus in the book of Acts is the way God himself has very directly led uh, the spread of the word into the world. And so you don't get the kind of uh, strategy statements or how-to ideas that the church often looks for today. With let's let me follow up on that one the the mission strategy one and the reason is is not so much about that particular point but in terms of the way we read the book of Acts I think one of the challenges is how to determine or when to determine what is being the way that I've often said is descriptive where Luke is telling us what happened he's describing it and not necessarily prescriptive that is saying this is the way it should be for all Christians in every time and every place how do you I mean how do we go through Acts and and know which one we're looking at. Yeah, this is a big dividing point between the way different groups of Christians will relate to Acts in particular. Uh, for example, uh, people who think all churches should be house churches uh, will point to the book of Acts. 
people who think ministry should be characterized by healing or exorcism will point to the Book of Acts. But it's a general hermeneutical or interpretive principle that we work with that narratives are fundamentally descriptive in their purpose. Uh, we have to look for ways to apply them based on uh, what's similar about our situation today uh, to that of the situation when these events occurred. That means you can't simply take a narrative and say, this is the way it's supposed to be forever. Uh, clearly, uh, we don't want a passage like the beginning of Acts 5, for instance, uh, with Ananias and Sapphira to be prescriptive. Um, so mostly we catch ourselves trying to make our favorite parts prescriptive. And we need to fight that temptation and say, no, this is a narrative. Now I need to do the hard work to ask, how does this apply to the church today? Yeah, that's right. I like the way you said that. Usually it's the favorite parts, the parts that we want. That's the part we make or prescriptive and the other parts we say are descriptive. And we need to be careful when we do that. That's well said. Pastor, or Dr. Oswald, what about the the outline of the book of Acts? How does, the, how does this narrative progress? People almost always uh, turn to chapter one and those uh, words of Jesus there in verse eight. Um, that this will that they will be his witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria to the end of the earth. That works uh, nicely in a it's a very memorable and a very sort of picturesque way of describing what happens in the rest of Acts. There is a kind of geographic outline then where the story starts in Jerusalem and spreads. Um, at least as far as Rome. Uh, most people also notice that there's a kind of division that takes place just about halfway through the book of Acts. Uh, there's some overlap on either side. But the first 14 chapters spend a lot more time talking about Peter and his work. And the second 14 chapters talk a lot more about Paul and his work. Uh, so there's a sort of central or critical significance to what happens in chapter 15 with the meeting of everybody, Paul and Peter are both there in Jerusalem uh, for this gathering of the church there. And then Luke will follow uh, the story on another trajectory. He obviously could have continued to follow Peter's career, uh, but chooses Paul. And I think part of the reason he does that is because Paul himself is perhaps the best human example of exactly what the book of Acts is about, uh, which is the way the gospel transforms people, uh, gives them new life, brings them to faith, makes them followers of Jesus, and turns them into his witnesses. Hmm. Um, in fact, Luther said the book of Acts is really just about justification by faith, because you see all these human characters involved in the story, and not a single one of them really qualifies uh, for the great tasks that God accomplishes through them. Uh, on their own merits, um, the church would have been in pretty bad shape. Uh, but by God's grace, uh, through these justified uh, people of God, uh, the gospel moves forward. Talk a little bit more about the the main characters, if I can say it that way, within the narrative of the book of Acts. And, and just as a 
you know, as an aside with that, in for example, in the Greek New Testament, the title, the longer, fuller title is the Acts of the Apostles. And I'll kind of, you know, tip my hand where I'm, I'm going here. There are these main characters, Peter, Paul, others that play important roles. And, and yet, as I think you've already said, the real actor here is Jesus through these men. So kind of tie some of those threads together for us. Okay, I'll start with an interesting question about uh, how do we classify this book of Acts? Yeah. I mean, it's, again, like the Gospels, it's not just straightforward history. And so people have sort of wrestled with the idea of a genre to assign to the book of Acts. Uh, If you want to say biography, well, you've got two human characters who seem to both be main characters. Uh, So it's kind of strange in that way, too. Some people have done studies on, you know, when you have a main character in a book, how much of the time does that main character uh, appear as the subject of the verbs. He's the one who does the mm-hmm. stuff. And if you look at the book of Acts, it's the word of God that actually is the main character. Hmm. It's the word that does stuff uh, in the proportion you would expect for the main character to be acting in a narrative like this. So one of my favorite ways of talking about Acts is that it's a biography of the word of God. Uh, it's the story of that word going out into the world. Now, of course, uh, Jesus works through human instruments to bring about this progress of the word. And the two that quickly sort of come into focus as the main characters are Peter. And again, we cannot forget how recently uh, the events at the end of Luke have taken place. We often think of Peter as sort of the strong Christian and Paul as the new convert. But remember, Peter is the one who just denied his Lord. Um, Peter is one of the 11 who all left Jesus uh, alone to die. Uh, One of the 11 who then are greeted with the words of peace by the risen Jesus and reconstituted as his uh, people, his new Israel. Uh, Paul again, uh, enters the story as an enemy of this faith, uh, sort of doing everything he can to eradicate the followers of Jesus, the ones who walk that way, um, and has a confrontation with that Jesus on the way. And suddenly everything changes. Uh, He realizes that he's been wrong about Jesus. Uh, He is brought to faith. Uh, in this Jesus as the one sent to save not only Israel, but the world. We meet a whole host of other very interesting characters. Some of them sort of quickly rise as um, secondary major characters, like Stephen, perhaps. Mm. Um, The Apostle John appears uh, in the early narrative, the early chapters of the narrative. Uh, But I think it's uh, Linsky in his commentary who says that Luke mentions over 100 people by name in the book of Acts. And that's an incredible cast of characters, uh, people who you get to know enough in the story so that they actually uh, have their name mentioned there. Uh, We could think of Lydia, for example, and the role she plays. Uh, Just person after person uh, sort of comes back once we start rehearsing the stories in Acts And I think that's one of the reasons people really enjoy uh, reading Acts. You get to see 
all of these people and the way the gospel has changed their lives. Dr. Oshwald, we have about three and a half minutes here before the break, and we've talked a lot about the, the variety that's there in the book of Acts, all centering on the word of God going forth, Jesus doing his work still in this way. You mentioned that the book of Acts in our lectionary doesn't really show up all that often in what we hear on a Sunday morning. We hear it at the Ascension if we have that service. We hear it on the day of Pentecost. The season after Easter will include some readings in the book of Acts in the three-year lectionary at least. So with with that, and you said you know there are these accounts that we do love, why do we need the book of Acts? What are we missing if we don't have it? Why do we need this book? If we didn't have Acts, uh, we would not have an inspired account of the way the Word enters the world and how it transforms the world. We would get pictures of it, of course, in Paul's letters. Uh, We have the expectation of it from the Gospels uh, with Jesus' own words about what will happen in the future. Uh, But here we get to see the Word interacting with, uh, we might say, ordinary people. Uh, people who are uh, living their lives, um, you know, looking for hope and meaning and purpose in life, uh, but not finding it anywhere until someone comes along and begins to tell them about Jesus Christ. Uh, you might think of the Ethiopian eunuch, another favorite character in his encounter with, um, with Philip. What is all this Bible stuff about, he asks, and Philip can answer confidently. It's about Jesus, and let me tell you. And um, you know how that continues uh, with a baptism and with a a eunuch who now has new life, uh, returning home, and the reader of Acts expects here's one more place where this gospel is going to be witnessed to, and it will spread and take hold. I think that's what we would miss uh, if we didn't have Acts. So we have this wonderful book from the pen of St. Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts that records how the word of God went forth into the world upon Jesus' ascension. And we're going to look at the first part of that book on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about the book of Acts and chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 with Dr. Jeff Oswald. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, April 25th. We're studying Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11 with the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey Oswald. He serves as professor of exegetical theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Oswald, prior to the break, we introduced the book of Acts. Now we turn to the text. This is Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That's the text for today. That's Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Dr. Oshwald, let's talk a little bit about the the overlap between the gospel that Luke writes and now the book of Acts. He ends his gospel with the ascension, and now he begins Acts with that ascension. He gives a bit more detail here, but why why the overlap? What makes the ascension the the hinge point? Well, I would say the the hinge point is really a little bit bigger than the ascension itself. Very good. Because if you look at the opening verses in Acts, you have references back. Uh, all the way to the suffering that is the death of Jesus. So I think for Luke, the real hinge point is sort of the whole period between the crucifixion and the ascension. So he wants the reader to have all these things in his mind uh, to remember that period as she opens up the book of Acts. And then with that fresh in your mind, then we'll begin the new story. One of the other things I've found uh, that tends to happen with people when they open up Acts is they think this begins years later or something like mm-hmm. that after the events that close the gospel. But we're really just talking a matter of days. So the disciples are still in Jerusalem. Uh, all of the same leaders are still in Jerusalem. The people who arrested and executed their Lord are still there. That's where the story unfolds. And this is all very fresh in the minds of those who are in the story. And Luke wants to make sure it's fresh in our minds, too. So he ends the gospel with the ascension, which is a very nice sort of rounding off of, we might say, the earthly work of Jesus. But he gives you what, I guess, in today's terms, we would just call a teaser, right? Um, A preview of, um, you know, hold on for the next season, it's coming. Uh, So you get this one scene that you're sort of left with. And now when you open up Acts, you want to say, okay, what was the full story there? He just mentioned it almost in passing. What was that all about? So he returns, uh, opens that up. He doesn't course, tell the resurrection story again, but has Jesus there, the risen Jesus among his disciples, uh, teaching them, uh, spending time with them, and then leading up to that visible departure uh, at the ascension. Mm. And I think that whole connection period will be very important for how you read the book of Acts. Talk a little bit more about that last thing you said. How, how is how is this connection period important for the way we read the book of Acts? 
Okay, I'm going to jump ahead here to the question of the disciples in verse 6. Uh, when John Calvin read this verse, he said there were as many mistakes in it as there are words. Uh, and when I ask people about this verse, uh, they all seem to say, see, the disciples still don't get it. Uh, they're looking for Jesus as some kind of political savior who's going to make uh, Israel a strong nation again, and they will cast off Roman bondage and be free like they were at the time of David or something like that. The problem with that is reading that in connection with the end of the gospel. Because at the end of Luke, in chapter 24, we have that very important scene where Jesus opens the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. And he takes them through the Old Testament, sort of piece by piece, showing them how the Old Testament wrote about Jesus, how these things that have happened to him are reaching their fulfillment. These are not contrary to God's plan. Uh, this is the way God had uh, purposed that things would happen. And so these disciples who appear at the beginning of Acts are people who have just had their minds opened to finally begin to grasp who Jesus is in light of God's plan. And if you notice at the end of verse 3, the main topic of conversation during these 40 days was the kingdom of God. So Jesus continues to teach them about the way God reigns and rules in his world, about the way God claims that world uh, as his own once again, uh, saving it uh, in his son, Jesus Christ. So with all that as background, then we have to ask, what are they asking when they ask, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The kingdom used in an absolute way like this <clears throat> without any qualification, in the New Testament is always God's kingdom. Uh, so they're not asking, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom to Israel? And I will get uh, right to the point here. You can ask more questions if you want. But I think what they're really asking is, Lord, is there any role in your work left for us? Because your chosen people denied you, handed you over to the Gentiles, and had you executed. There is no clearer indication of Israel's unfaithfulness than the way they have treated the Lord's Messiah. Hmm. Now, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's clearly triumphant. But what about Israel? Is there any hope left for Israel? Is there any role for Israel, for God's people, uh, in the plan of God to bring salvation to the world? So I think their question is actually a legitimate one. I think, in fact, it is the critical question as we move forward. And uh, to return briefly to a question you asked before the break, what if we didn't have Acts? We would not know how this question gets answered. What about the people of God, the unfaithful, the failed people of God, in the time of the resurrection? Well, at the end of the gospel, of course, Jesus has greeted them with words of peace. Uh, here, he actually gives them uh, an indication of how they will still have something to do. 
And I think it was Martin Franzman who said, there's no better absolution than a commission. Mm. Mm. Um, if you are restored, uh, you're given work to do, uh, that shows that the, the relationship has been uh, reconciled. Mm. So Jesus, in response to that, of course, tells them, I can't answer your question of when. Are you at this time going to do this? Uh, the when is something uh, my father has determined. But the what, are you going to restore this kingship, this uh, role in God's work uh, to your people? That you will be my witnesses of, which I think is essentially saying, watch and see what's going to happen. And if you notice, especially in the opening chapters of Acts, the disciples are almost always one step behind the gospel. You know, it gets there before they do. And then they go and see, they go and witness the way Jesus is at work in this place uh, through other people, um, like Philip, for instance, uh, who have brought the gospel to Samaria, like the people who fled Jerusalem and go to Antioch. Uh, so the gospel goes out through these very ordinary characters, these people Luther calls uh, little preachers, and the apostles go and see, yes, this is the Lord at work here. Hmm. Uh, so I think Jesus' response is not a, uh, certainly not a reproach, uh, not really a rebuke in the normal sense. Uh, Jesus was not afraid to call his disciples uh, foolish or slow to believe. Um, but here he is sort of redirecting their gaze to watch and see how this will unfold, and they will know uh, that they are going to be included in this. So the the way that you explain that question is is not a way that I've ever thought about, but it's it's really got me thinking now about some of the things that that I read at the end of the book of of Luke and at the end of the gospel, because this, you know, this kingdom language, as you pointed out, which shows up in verse three of this chapter here in Acts is of course very common in the gospel as well, and particularly during Holy Week. So a couple of things come, come to my mind as, as you're talking about the, the way that they ask the question, you know, is there any role left for Israel? It reminds me a little uh -huh. bit of the, or it takes my mind back to Luke chapter 20, to the parable of the, the vineyard and the tenants in the vineyard who refuse the fruit. And then, exactly. you know, it, well, I mean, that, it sounds like a, a question that would come out of that. You know, that, that okay, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the way that Jesus concluded that was, you know, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So kind of like, okay, Jesus, you've become the cornerstone. Now what? Are, are we all crushed? What's the, what's the, what's going on here? And I mean, I, tell you, I have to chew on that for a while because I, I think, I think that fits with that. It, also, the, the kingdom talk was, was so important on, on Monday, Thursday and into Good Friday. And the, the in on in the upper room in Luke chapter 22 where they're having that argument about who's the greatest and Jesus uh -huh. speaks to them about the you know what it means to actually be greatest but then he does talk about you stayed with me and he assigns to them a kingdom and he talks about judging the 12 tribes of Israel so i i think i like the way you're explaining the the question i'm going to have to to chew on it a little bit though and i think it but i man that's i i like it i don't am i am i Am I hitting on the right pieces, at least, as, as you're explaining yeah. it? And chewing on it is exactly right. Um, this is a challenging question. And uh, if you think about the parable you mentioned, uh, imagine for a moment how the disciples might have heard that when Jesus spoke it. Mm. 
you know, that here Jesus is talking against these opponents in Jerusalem. Uh, think of the temptation to, for them to think, well, we would never do that to Jesus. We would never reject him. Hmm. We would never cast him out for dead. Um, and then just days later, they find themselves doing exactly that. Now, if they're thinking about the things Jesus has taught them along the way uh, in that very uh, solemn day of, of what we call Holy Saturday, um, how could these things not have been coming back to haunt them? Mm-hmm. That we know what it means to deny the Christ, and yet we have done it. You know, the, the early sermons in Acts are full of very strong condemnation for those who rejected, <clears throat> condemned, and murdered <clears throat> the Lord Christ. The disciples experience that themselves first. And I think this is a, a question of the utmost seriousness, not of misunderstanding, but of, of a, a beginning insight into what all this really means. Well, and the, what you said about Martin Franzman's comment about you know the the absolution and the commission going together, it's almost like uh-huh. this then becomes a moment like what is recorded at the end of John's Gospel, where Peter is restored by that threefold commission of you know feed my sheep or tend to my lambs. The three three times he is restored, given that commission. Similarly, with with the whole group here. You will be my witnesses. This is this is your commission. You are restored. Go now and and be the witness. Talk a little uh-huh. bit about about what that means to be a witness, because that's going to be a pretty important term, not only here in verse eight, but in the book of Acts. Uh, first of all, I think it's helpful to see the difference between the way some of these words are recorded in Luke's writings, uh, as opposed to, for instance, Matthew, where we have the Great Commission. Um, Notice how Jesus here doesn't phrase this as a command so much as uh, almost a prediction. Uh, He almost speaks uh, these things as if uh, this is Mm. certain. And, of course, that's what he means. Uh, At the end of Luke, again, turning back to Luke 24, uh, Jesus speaks of his death and his resurrection and the proclamation of this uh, word of repentance in his name as if all three of those are equally certain, and the reader has seen the first two already come about and can have no doubt that the third one, this proclamation of the gospel of repentance, uh, will happen as well. And here, too, in the beginning of Acts, you see simply, you will be my witnesses. Um, This word will go forth. Uh, You will have a role in it. And the idea of witness, especially as we see it begin to unfold in Acts, is not just about speaking. And I think that's a mistake uh, we contemporary Christians often make, too, uh, that we've learned a message and we speak that about Jesus. But it's also about actually seeing things, experiencing things. And what they see in these opening chapters of Acts is the power of this gospel uh, to transform the lives of people. And the inability of the word to stop that gospel, no matter what they do. Mm, yeah. uh, so the disciples see and hear these things. Uh, they then become the people who can not only proclaim that kind of core message of repentance, but can also help people understand uh, what's happening, the way God continues to be at work in our world. 
I think that's a very important role that we Christians can play as well. Uh, not just speaking, you know, a few sort of simple Bible verses. We want to do that, of course. Uh, but also helping people understand that God is still at work in our world. This is still his world. He's in control. Uh, he's bringing uh, human history to the conclusion he has planned for it. And we can trust in him to do that. In the narrative here in chapter one, talk a little bit about the role of Jerusalem, because Jesus tells them you need to stay here until you receive the promise of the Father. And then, you know, that statement there in verse eight, that the witnesses, they start there in Jerusalem. In the gospel, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He's accomplished those things there in Jerusalem. As you said, the, the time gap is small. They're right there still. Talk about the, the role of Jerusalem. Well, the Gospel of Luke, of course, has a very strong sort of geographic focus on Jerusalem. For most of the Gospel, we are headed there. Mm. And yet we know what's going to happen there. Although we tend to only hear certain parts of that, we think of this as the city where Jesus will die. This is the Jerusalem that stones the prophets. Jesus had also said, of course, that he would rise here. And uh, both the readers and the disciples in the story tend to forget that part. But they're here. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. Jerusalem has not changed yet. And yet this is the sort of the locus, the center of God's presence in the world. Uh, The role of the temple, I think, is already changing. Uh, This is the place now of the resurrection of the uh, the new sort of day of atonement of the cross and resurrection and it's from this place then uh, beginning with the people of jerusalem first uh, that this uh, call to repentance and faith will go out emotionally it's hard to imagine uh, how that must have felt for the 11 hearing that uh, i want you to stay here This is probably the worst city in the world for a Christian at that moment. Uh, And yet, uh, at the end of Luke again, we hear that they they come to Jerusalem. They're rejoicing. Uh, They're not hiding in an upper room anymore. They're out in the temple. They're mixing with people. Um, But it's as a gathered uh, group of followers of Jesus that the Spirit will come upon them. And then, after that experience... Uh, they will disperse. So I think that's also important, too, not just that it's Jerusalem, but they they will be gathered here. Uh, But Jerusalem, this uh, holy city, this place where so much of God's uh, plan of salvation has has taken place or been connected with, uh, that's where this part of the story will begin as well. Now, the main thing that happens here at the end of this text is the ascension of Jesus, which we have said is an overlap between the end of the gospel. So at the end of the gospel, Jesus had taken them out to Bethany. He lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was doing that, he parted from them. He was carried up into heaven. They go back, as you said, into Jerusalem. They worship with great joy. What do we find out? What details does Luke add here at the at this text in Acts chapter 1 to the event of Jesus' ascension? Well, in addition to sort of everything leading up to verse 9, right, the period of instruction, uh, the conversation about um, their future role, uh, we uh, didn't talk much about verse 5, about Jesus saying, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, so we have that to look forward to. Um, uh, then uh, we are given a few more details about uh, what the uh, witnesses of the Ascension would have seen. So it's not the simple fact that he was taken from them, uh, but he is lifted up. A cloud takes him out of their sight. Um, the words Luke uses to describe this are quite graphic. It's almost like uh, the cloud is in the shape of a hand, and it sort of scoops Jesus up uh, and carries them out of their range of sight. Mm. And then, of course, you have the appearance of the two men uh, who can only be angels. Uh, they speak from a heavenly perspective, uh, and they speak with confidence about what Jesus will do. Um, with that, um, the ascension concludes. Uh, so there is uh, no real interpretation of the event given by Luke, uh, and there is certainly not a lot of um, what we might think of as uh, fanfare uh, uh, happening. It's narrated in very simple terms. So with that, I mean, this being just a, a very clean narrative, it tells you what happened and what was said, and that's that, no real interpretation. It, yet the ascension of our Lord is something we confess each week in the creed. It is a key part of his work for salvation for us. So from the facts that we get here in Acts chapter 1, what what should we make of, of Jesus' ascension? What's the importance of it? When I, again, uh, talk about the ascension in class, I like to start with some images from the history of Christian art. And there are two very different ways of trying to portray the ascension. Hmm. And I don't know if you are familiar with any of the medieval representations, but Albrecht Dürer has a, a woodcut like this, uh, where at the top of the, the picture, you just see the feet of Jesus. Um, I don't know if you've seen these images, but you know there's a gathered human crowd, uh, the apostles down below with the angels, uh, but then just this pair of feet at the very top of the picture. Mm. Uh, the other way is um, with either the hand sort of reaching down from heaven or with the, the Father himself pictured as welcoming the Son uh, to the glory at the Father's right hand. So the ascension of Jesus is both a departure and a welcoming home. Mm. Um, the departure is that... Uh, with just a few exceptions, people will no longer see Jesus. Uh, that is uh, his bodily presence here on earth. Uh, they will certainly see him at work. They will hear his word of, of power and life, uh, but he will not come in and out among them uh, to eat with them uh, and uh, teach them sort of face to face like that. So there is a real difference that happens in the way Jesus is present. But it's not that Jesus is sort of uh, leaving us now and that the story of Jesus is over. But all along, this was the trajectory of his course. It was through cross and resurrection to return to the right hand of his father. And Peter, in one of his uh, early sermons, will use a term to refer to Jesus that doesn't occur anywhere in the Gospels uh, and is only used in one other place in the New Testament, he refers to Jesus as an archegos, a leader, or sometimes author is used. Um, I like to uh, help people see that in the ascension, Jesus is still leading us. 
because this is also the path that we follow uh, when we watch uh, him uh, rise and ascend we are seeing the way that our story will end in him uh, which is not in death but in resurrection and in the presence of our, our god uh, um, so that even now he has not left us uh, but he is leading us forward and uh, we are marching on that pilgrim way uh, following in the the trail that he has blazed mm. uh, that term i mentioned the archegos uh, is hard to translate because it it has the idea of someone who blazes the trail as a pioneer sometimes it's translated that way but also then the one who establishes the community at the end of the trail so a sort of founding prince um, and to say jesus is that for us of life uh, is extremely rich in meaning uh, he blazes the trail to life and then he establishes life as the place we will be forever. Mm. Um, and I think that's all suggested here in the Ascension. Um, but Luke, again, is not pausing or interrupting his story uh, to give us uh, his own Ascension sermon, uh, but moving on quickly to see how, the, how things will unfold uh, now that Jesus has ascended. Dr. Oshel, we have about two minutes left, and there, there's so much here. Help us just to, to wrap things up, again, with, with what we've seen here in just these first 11 verses, and give us, a, again, a preview of, of the good news we're going to experience in this book. The first thing we see in the risen Jesus is he is the one who, like Luke, makes firm our faith. Uh, he reminds us of the things he's taught. He teaches us how to read the scriptures as referring to him. He shows how the things that have happened are part of the plan of God to save the world. So he draws these people into his work. Uh, he will use them. They will be his instruments, uh, his witnesses, uh, his voice in the world, uh, even his body in the world. And he leaves um, this uh, opening scene by opening up the way to the Father. And uh, if there was any doubt about what Jesus' death and resurrection had accomplished, uh, that's removed as we see Jesus, uh, our Emmanuel, uh, God with us and us with him, uh, now uh, entering into the glory of his Father. Um, one note in uh, just passing here, um, not many people notice that when these two men appear here in uh, verse uh, 10, the disciples don't respond with the fear that we're used to seeing when angels suddenly appear. Hmm. Uh, the angels don't have to say, don't be afraid. It's as if uh, earth and heaven have been opened up or joined uh, by this work of Christ um, who brings uh, God to us and us to God. Um, and there's no fear, no terror. Um, the disciples know that their Lord is leading and that they will follow. The Reverend Dr. Jeffrey Oshwald is Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, helping us today with Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Dr. Oshwald, thanks for being our guest today. It's been my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Acts, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org 
or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Looking forward to journeying through the book of Acts together with you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.